Hello and welcome to the ATP Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Atkins, and guys, I hope you are ready for an absolute banger. Strap yourselves in and let's get ready. First of all, um, guys, welcome back. It has been a hot minute. I've been working very hard behind the scenes, but let's get the show underway. So first of all, guys, um, thank you so much for joining in. Um, Places where you can find myself and ATP. So if you jump over onto the internet, we are at www.atpfitness.com.au. You can also find myself over at YouTube at Coach Josh Atkins and also at Instagram. You can find us, uh, so myself, Josh J. Atkins, and the handle for ATP is the at ATP.podcast. You can also find us on Spotify, obviously where you're listening from now, but also Apple Podcasts and all other streaming services, and that is at ATP Podcast. You can also find us by simply going into Google and typing Coach Josh Atkins. That will take you to the ATP website. And all the links as well will be provided at the end of the show in this instance in which you can get the best effects from. So what I mean by that, guys, is I'm essentially going to give you some tools and some tricks because what you do in these situations in either deliberate uh, heat exposure or cold exposure, just by simply sitting in there won't elicit all of the same results. So I'm going to give you specific protocols in order for you to follow which best sort of line up with what you are trying to achieve, be it your goals or be it whatever you might be training for or simply just wanting to feel better. We're also going to be talking about um, just some of the ways in which this can be applied as well, keeping in mind that it is sometimes hard to completely replicate these protocols and we understand that. However, just trying to get there and do it as best you can, be it through a third party, so someone that provides, be it sauna or ice baths, or if you do have the ability to um, get them or use them uh, at your own free will, be it your uh, if you own it or if friends and family may possibly own um, these devices. So I'd just like to give a quick disclaimer as well, guys. Everything that is recommended in here uh, on this podcast through these protocols are recommendations only. Um, I have gone through, looked at studies. I have also um, gotten some of these protocols from other people, and I will be crediting them for that. Um, So these are all just uh, recommendations, guys. Of course, before you do any um, deliberate hot or cold exposure, uh, always go see a doctor or a professional that you trust. Um, Obviously, seeking their advice, getting their professional opinions, very, very important. So firstly, the credits. Uh, I would love to credit Andrew Huberman. Um, He is at the Huberman Lab podcast. You can also find his website at thehubermanlab.com. That is H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N, Huberman Lab. Lastly, uh, just some announcements, guys. We've got the newsletter up on the website now. So if you would like to stay in the loop, please jump over to the website uh, up in the tab. So on the homepage, you'll see up the top right, there is a newsletter section. Just simply ask for your email and first name. I will not be spamming you, team. Don't worry about that. In order for me to spam, it means I have to do even more work. 
and I'm not about that at the moment. I am busy enough as it is. So I will only be about once a month, maybe even a little bit longer, just releasing updates, what's coming, um, some links to some great studies. You will not be getting spammed. If you get more than two emails in a month, I apologize. That will probably never happen. It may just mean I was late on getting one of them out, but they would just be a newsletter, guys, just letting you know everything that is happening and going on. So let's get into it. So we're going to be talking about deliberate heat and cold exposure. What are the benefits of doing both of these exposures? So exposing yourself to heat and exposing yourself to the cold, as well as protocols which you can put in place that pertain to you. So keeping in mind, guys, that not all of these will mean everything to you. You may hear one protocol which really does resonate with you. Um, By all means, give it a go. See if it works. Um, Not all these protocols are designed to be done at once. Uh, In fact, some of them can be contradictory to each other. So I highly recommend just listening in. I will be listing all the protocols first um, for the cold and then for heat. So don't worry, they'll all be there. And then I'll also be leaving um, notes down in the show notes uh, component. There you'll be able to uh, quickly zip into where you hear the protocol and go back there. So you don't need to worry about saving uh, the timestamp or anything. That will all be in the show notes for you. I'll also have a link to all of the studies as well, which I have referenced. um, Also, which uh, Andrew Huberman referenced as well in regards. So every bit of information I have has been referenced to a study. Um, If it doesn't, I will let you know. So firstly, why do I say protocols and not habits? The easiest way to put this, guys, is a habit entails that you are trying to build upon a habit you already have or you're trying to um, establish a new habit in place of an old one. Protocols are not about that. These aren't designed to be done every day or all the time, multiple times a day, even multiple times a week, some of them. Some of them are only meant to be done intermittently and they're also meant to be done in line with your goals. So your goals may change throughout the year, throughout the decades. These protocols aren't designed to be done all the time. So therefore they are not a habit. Protocols are there in place to serve a specific purpose. Um, So with that in mind, if you would like to know more about habits, I do highly recommend going back and listening to the podcast I did with Ben. He really breaks down how to, uh, what is a habit and then how to establish habits, how to break old ones. And it's, it's really a great podcast, guys. So I highly recommend going back, listening to that. Ben Mayfield Smith, we did that. It was possibly the last podcast and then a few before that. We've done some really good ones um, at the start of this year, end of last year. So 20, end of 2021 and the start of 2022. So protocols, what are they? Where? So a protocol is an official procedure that is followed in order to get the desired outcome concluded by scientific research and studies. And do this in the order and as the research says, and the results will follow. Of course, with that in mind, guys, as I said, you need to keep uh, in mind that these protocols or these studies have been done in labs, in controlled environments. 
Sometimes we are unable to live up to uh, what the controls were. For example, if they had a specific sauna set at a specific degreeage, that's fine. They were able to control that and that's how the study was done. However, if you go and use a sauna at a third party, so for instance, those of you in Brisbane, say a recovery science, you may find that the sauna only goes up to say one or four fifths of the temperature that they use. So if they were doing 90 degrees, the sauna may only go up to say 70, 75. So keeping that in mind that although a protocol lists a specific uh, temperature or a specific variable, there may be points where you're unable to achieve that. It doesn't mean that it's rendered moot and that the protocol won't work. It may simply mean you need to spend longer in that environment in order to elicit the same or close to the same result that was there before. So with that in mind, guys, um, just remembering as well, we are everyday humans. So some of these protocols can be um, somewhat daunting Um, They may also not work financially. So if there's a high financial outlay, it may not work. That is fine, understanding that. um, And also that when I do give some protocols, there are also uh, general times as well to be best done. So you don't have to exactly hit the time which I list. I do give examples and I do give um, approximates. But Keeping in mind, we are humans. We will have things come up. There will always be events or obstacles in the way um, which we are unable to work around. So keeping that in mind as well, it doesn't mean it's going to ruin it. It's just these protocols were designed to be done in a lab in a controlled environment so they could see if there were changes. So just keeping that in mind for me, guys. All right, so let's talk about what deliberate exposure is, both hot and cold. So deliberate exposure, simply put, is when you are going out of your way to expose yourself to an environment, be it hot or cold. These type of exposures may be something like sauna, ice bath, running in the middle of the day in summer, so that's another form of heat exposure, or Swimming in an ice water lake in winter, that would be cold exposure. Likewise, running in the winter um, in minimal protective clothing. So uh, if you're in a cold environment and you go for a run to deliberately expose yourself to the cold, you may only wear, say, a singlet, um, some running pants, and some joggers. That may be it. So you're exposing yourself to those elements. Likewise as well, if you're running in summer, you can then, of course, we've all seen it with boxes and people that are trying to strip uh, weight or water weight, you can add on more clothing. So uh, by putting on a jumper, um, you've obviously seen some people put probably garbage bags on and go in the treadmills in the gym. It's disgusting. They sweat everywhere. It's ridiculous. All they're doing is just sweating. They're not actually stripping fat. But they are some forms of deliberate exposure, hot and cold. Some forms of deliberate exposure, which, or sorry, some forms that aren't deliberate exposure would be things like just walking outside when it's cold, when you're going to work. You might be all rugged up trying to stay warm. However, you feel cold. It's not really deliberate exposure or it's not deliberate exposure Uh, in the sense that we're talking about. Likewise, sitting at home without the aircon on in the middle of summer or when it's hot, that isn't really a form of deliberate heat exposure and so on and so on. So keep that in mind, guys. Deliberate 
uh, exposure is when you're purposefully going out and exposing yourself to an element, the elements, be it hot or cold, and you are trying to get a desired effect from that. So a few things before we get into the protocols for heat and cold, I just want to run off. This is going to give you a generalized sort of idea of where we're coming from, and hopefully it leaves you just a little bit more informed. So firstly, we want to understand what's happening um, to the body in regards of temperature and circadian rhythm. Firstly, body temperature is broken down into two parts. We have our shell and we also have our core body temperature. Now, our shell is our exterior, so that is our skin, stuff that we can see, we can feel. This um, is where we are going to generally feel heat. So when it's hot outside, we're going to get that first initial response uh, on our skin. We're going to be able to feel that it's hot and Likewise, when it's cold. We then have our core body temperature. Now, our core temperature can only fluctuate a few degrees. You'll notice, for example, when you get sick, you'll generally have a fever. This is your body raising its core body temperature in order to fight the virus or a virus that you may have. We can also cool the, temp the core body temperature by exposing ourselves um, to hot or cold, so heating and cooling. But it is very important that we keep in mind to not get too hot or too cold, or we will risk hypothermia or hypothermia or hypothermia. So that is the difference there. So um, when we're obviously heating, hyperthermia, hyperthermia, H-Y-P-E-R, thermia, is when it is too hot. When you become too hot or the body becomes too hot, we are then at risk of causing neuron damage um, when we are in too much heat. Hypo, so H-Y-P-O, thermia, is too cold. And this is when potentially we can get frostbite, um, which will then lead to a loss of limb and it will generally start at the extremities, so fingers and toes, where the least amount of blood flow is happening. So now we're gonna talk about some tips for thermal regulation. Now, for thermal regulation, this is mainly, uh, I'm gonna be talking about post-exercise and cooling down. This is actually a little hack. So keep this one in mind, especially guys, if it's summer and you're training. So for all of those of you that are listening that do love to train, especially in the gym, or even going out for a run when it is hot and you are trying to cool down, what we want to do is not place a cold towel on parts of the body, specifically the back of the neck or the head. Now, I know back when I used to play football, we if we were too hot, especially in pre-season, we would usually get um, ice water and squirt it over the back of our necks, thinking that we were cooling ourselves down. This actually has the opposite effect. By placing a ice towel, ice pack, or um squirting like extremely cold water, so almost frozen iced water um, onto the head or the back. What we do is we start to heat the body up and this is the response. So what you need to think about is when we go out into the elements and we're too hot, we feel that on our skin. And what happens is our brain then goes, okay, it's too hot. I need to start cooling down. So I will start sweating, start panning, want to spread out, uh, get rid of as much heat as possible. On the flip, when we go out and it's outside and it's very cold, our body goes, okay, 
it's very cold. I need to constrict. I need to uh, vasoconstrict. So make everything colder, move all the blood around to the vital organs, keep everything warm and start to shiver. Shiver is the last process of our body trying to warm ourselves up. So we shiver in order to get warm because we're creating that movement. So if we are too hot and then we squirt ice water on our head, on our neck, on our back, this is then telling our body, hang on, it's now really cold, I need to try and heat up. So you can see we have this adverse reaction. And what this is what this is doing is this is telling our brain, so in our brain there's a thermostat and it is called the medial preoptic area of the hypothalamus. So this is what tells our body it's too hot or it's too cold. It is a collection of neurons. It receives signals from the skin. So as I said, if you are heating up or cooling down, it then leverages portals on the body or areas where these are located. So what we're working on here is now our glabrous skin surfaces. These surfaces are different to the rest of our skin and they are located on our hands. So the palms of our hands, on the bottoms of our feet, and on our face, so our cheeks and forehead. And without going into the detail of how um, the blood vessels and capillaries work, because if I'm quite frank, I struggle a little bit with it anyway. However, if you go over to uh, the Huberman Lab, Andrew does a great job of um, summarizing this. But in summary, very, very simply put, is that these skin surfaces are slightly different to everywhere else. And that's just the way that the blood is transported um, and the body picks up the signals from those surfaces. So if we are trying to cool down, rather than placing a cold object, cold towel or water on the back of our head, top of our head, we should place something cold on our hands, on the bottom of our feet and on the front of our face, so our cheeks and forehead. That's how we're going to be able to cool down and vice versa if we're trying to warm up, warming up those areas as well. Because mainly in the sense of cooling down, as soon as the body senses that, it's then going through those massive heat dumps. So it's allowing you to dump heat and by placing those cold areas there, it takes that cool blood around the body a lot better. So it also helps to cool the core body temperature as well. So now that we've got thermal regulation out of the way, Let's go through endorphins and dynorphins, what the differences there are and how they work together. So first of all, this is also the first protocol. I will go over this at the end again, but this is the first protocol. And this is a protocol for increasing mood and well-being. So making sure you're happier. After deliberate heat or cold exposure, we have an upregulation of the chemical pathways that allow us to experience pleasure in all its forms. So think of it this way. When you first get into an ice bath or even if say a cold shower or you go to put your hand in freezing water, the very first reaction we do is to pull it out. But if we leave it in there for long enough, our brain then starts going, pull it out, pull it out, pull it out. And what's happening is you are having a release of dynorphins at this time. And the dynorphins job is to tell you to get out of there. It doesn't want you to be in that situation or it's telling your brain, get out of that. 
the more we push through, and I'll be talking about this in another protocol we call the wall protocol, but the more we push through that, the more dynorphins are released. So these are, in essence, a feel-bad response or a feel-bad hormone. Now, you may ask, why do I want to release a feel-bad hormone? And this is where it gets good. So when we release these dynorphins, it actually allows a more it actually allows more uptake of endorphins our feel good hormones so endorphins are responsible for making you feel happy for making you feel you know good wanting to do more of it it allows you to enjoy pleasure so by i think the easiest way i can put this is imagine you were to run a whole bunch of water through a dry riverbed the water as it's moving first up, that's your dynorphins. It's very slow, it's sludgy, no one likes it. However, it's wetting the waterbed. But once it has been wet and it remains wet, it allows for greater flow of clean water, which in this sense can be endorphins. So by being in an uncomfortable situation where our body wants to remove ourselves, be it in heat exposure, cold exposure, even exercise. So while exercising, you're doing high intensity interval training, you're puffing, you're panning, you feel like you're going to throw up or die, not actually die, but you feel really, really insane. You want to stop, but you keep pushing through. You are releasing dynorphins. Then once you have finished or remove yourself from that situation, so we move out of the, uh, the element exposure, so hot exposure or cold exposure, or we finish the workout, we then have a sudden flood of endorphins. And because those receptor pathways are now much more open and able to accept accept endorphins, we're able to experience pleasure and joy so much more. And this is what makes this so important. On a side tangent, You can imagine if you're doing all of this work that's hurting, it's not very enjoyable, but when you get it done, you feel good. If we then turn to things that we don't need to work for, which don't have a release in dynorphins, such as our phones, so when we're scrolling on social media, um, and another great example is illicit drug use. You get, so like cocaine, you get an, an endorphin release. If you're not, experiencing this dynorphin, so the hard work prior and only getting endorphins, your ability to enjoy or your ability for the receptors to take up the endorphins and make you feel happy and joy in the current time and situation actually becomes less and less efficable. So the efficiency is not there. So you can see where this suddenly becomes a problem. Maybe you've been told that you get dopamine release and endorphins from looking at your phone, but you don't really pay attention. The reason it's bad is because we're not having to work for it or we're not being in an uncomfortable situation. Now, an uncomfortable situation isn't hearing, you know, your uncle's really bad joke at Christmas and it makes you feel a little uncomfortable. That, that's not really the same thing. What we're talking about is like you are physically uncomfortable and your body, your brain is saying, I need to move away from this situation. However, it, I'll keep staying here and I'll push through. 
Obviously, in some cases, we then get to the area where it becomes dangerous. However, you'll know before you get there, or at least I hope you know um, before you get there. Up next, understanding the heating and cooling process. So we just went through this slightly before, talking about hyperthermia and hypothermia. So as soon as we get into a hot or cold environment, for sake of conversation, I'm gonna stick with um, a hot environment. We begin what's called the heating process. So of course, if you're getting in a cold environment, cooling process, but in this case, heating process. This is when uh, the environment is uh, hot, such as a sauna, and this is the during phase. So the heating process is when we're in the sauna or in a hot tub. We then go into the after phase, which would be in this case, the cooling. So once we get out, we then go into the cooling phase. Um, that's simply, very simply put, that is just the heating process and the cooling process. Now, as I said before, guys, we need to be careful of both when we're obviously using any heat environment or any cold environment, um, that we are very careful of hyperthermia. So heat exposure, as I said, can cause neuron damage. Um, and likewise, if we're in a cold environment, especially that which is getting down to those really low numbers, three to one degree, zero degrees Celsius, we need to be careful then of hypothermia, which is cold. So frostbite can obviously occur, um, loss of sensation. We just need to be careful in those situations, guys. So uh, they're always there. You will find in most commercial uses for hot and cold environments, it's very hard to get to uh, those extremes. However, it is a lot easier um, just through time to fall into that hyperthermia, so heat. So regardless of what uh, kind of sauna you're in, say it's even like 60 degrees, if you spend long enough in there, you will then eventually succumb to hypothermia. So just be careful about that. However, there's generally, again, if it's a uh, commercial or third party, um, say sauna, they've generally got, you know, safety mechanisms in place, be it someone walking around making sure everyone's okay. All right, another thing I wanna talk about again is the pre-optic area or the POA. Now this is over the roof of the mouth. It will change the way you think and feel when exposed to hot or cold. So it controls the sweat or shiver response. So the, this is just where the POA is located. So the pre-optic area, it's located over the roof of the mouth. It's not in your mouth, it's just above. And that's what uh, controls um, your autonomic system, um, subconscious responses to heat, such as sweating and vasodilation. So dilation being expanding, constriction being um, thinning in this case, the thinning or shortening, or not so much shortening, but the thinning of um, your veins, but vasodilation when it's too hot, and obviously when you're hot, you'll all know if you've been in a hot environment, um, your behavioral responses will change. So things like you wanna spread out, you wanna like lounge back, open up, try and disperse as much heat as possible. On the flip, if we're cold, then we start curling up into a ball, we start shivering. These are just normal responses and they're going to possibly, most likely be responses that you have when exposing yourself to heat and also to cold. So knowing what these responses are, knowing when it becomes dangerous for yourself, 
and knowing when you should get out. Now, when I say for yourself, we also talk about um, being heat adaptive or cold adaptive. So you imagine for everyone in Australia, you imagine people from Tassie uh, walking around in winter. Um, who knows how cold it gets down there? I'm up in sunny Queensland, but they might be down in Tassie and it's probably like five degrees. They come up to Queensland and it's 20. They're walking around in board shorts and a singlet because they're that hot, whereas we might all be walking around in jumpers when it's 20 degrees, which most of us are. So they're obviously a lot more cold adaptive than we are. However, on average, bring them up here on the summer, suddenly it's a different story. We might be hot and walking around in board shorts when it's 35 degrees and about 80% humidity, but they're going to be really struggling. They're going to be struggling to concentrate. They're going to be struggling to um, you know, keep food down. It, it's going to be a really tough time for them because they're not heat adaptive. So that's what we're talking about there in terms of your responses, which are derived from the POA, so the preoptic area. With that as well, guys, it is important to remember that if you do any of these protocols continuously, there will be some adaptations that happen. So you will become, if you're doing heat exposure, you will become more heat adaptive. Likewise, if you're doing cold, so ice bars, you will become more cold adaptive. So you will need to change these protocols slightly, either, and I'll actually, I'll go through them later, but either through time um, or intensity. So making it hotter or colder, or being in there for longer or shorter. So very much like working out, if you go to a gym and you've ever followed a resistance program, you'll know that you can't just stay on the same weight the whole time. You need to either increase reps or you need to increase weight. Yes, you can add in tempos, but very basically it would be either increasing reps or increasing weight um, over a certain amount of sets. So the next thing is talking about our circadian rhythm. Our circadian rhythm is our body's natural sleep-wake cycle. Now, before you say, why are we talking about sleep when we're talking about hot and cold? This does actually play a part. And again, knowing this information will help you understand when you may want to use these protocols or if they apply to you, it may be detrimental for what you're trying to do. So we're going to very quickly talk about our circadian rhythm as well. As I said, it is the natural, uh, sorry, it is the body's natural sleep-wake cycle. The tighter or more consistent your bedtimes are will be beneficial to maintaining your circadian rhythm. So what that means is if your bedtime is nine o'clock every single night and you wake up at seven o'clock in the morning and you're able to go to bed to sleep exactly on those times, you have a very tight circadian rhythm. However, on the flip, if you know your bedtime is nine o'clock at night, but you're not getting to bed till 11 on some nights, and then other nights you might get to bed a bit earlier at 7 p.m., and then if we're waking up, we've got that big range as well. We have a very inconsistent or loose circadian rhythm, and that can be detrimental to sleep and getting the benefits from sleep as well. But we'll talk about sleep in a later episode. So many things can uh, negatively impact circadian rhythm. That was just one example, so bedtimes. We're also talking about eating certain foods, so having high uh, carbohydrate, so very sugary type uh, foods can affect sleep, and also having them too close to your bedtime can also affect sleep. Hydration and the lack of or even overhydration 
hydrating too close to bedtime, again, can affect, can affect your sleep and circadian rhythm. Stimulants such as caffeine and light. So a way that circadian rhythm can be affected is obviously having a coffee too early or sorry, too close to bedtime. But also say, for example, getting up to go to the toilet in the middle of the night. If you need to turn on all the lights, that light exposure can actually affect your, it's actually more to do with your hormones like uh, melatonin, can actually affect its secretion and um, much the same. It can also then affect your circadian rhythm. So the ability to go back to sleep and or stay asleep. And then also core body temperature. So we'll talk about that very shortly, but if your core body temperature is out of whack, this can affect also your circadian rhythm and likewise can also affect your sleep. So it's important to note that your core body temperature, talking about that now, sorry, core body temperature, it is important to note um, that the coolest time of your core body temperature is approximately two hours before you wake. So I'll give the example, if you were to wake up at 8 a.m., you may find that your core body temperature around two hours or so, not you may, you will find that around two hours. It's not exactly two hours, but it's around two hours prior to waking up, your core temperature's at its lowest. On the flip, when we talk about our core body temperature being the highest, it's approximately two hours before bedtime. So if we go to bed at 10 p.m., that 8 p.m., we can expect that our core body temperature is at its highest and then it begins to drop down. So once it peaks, so when I refer to being its highest and lowest, from that point then on, it will then raise or lower. So in this case, when it's at its lowest, it begins to raise from there. When it says highest, it begins to fall. Why does it do this? So along with a range of um, hormonal factors that also concurrently happening, what is going on is at around that 6 a.m., so when you begin to uh, warm up, the body is releasing hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline. Now, everyone talks about cortisol being a bad hormone. It is actually necessary as well as adrenaline. They are necessary in order to wake up. They're only secreted at very minute amounts, so enough to wake you up. However, if we are constantly stressed, if we're constantly in a state of anxiety or tension, we will see that those, um, those hormone levels will remain high and stay high um, for an unhealthy amount of time. On the flip, when we are getting ready to go to bed or when we're getting sleepy, so we start to cool down, our core body temperature starts to cool down. And what's happening is our body is starting to release melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. More of that gets released as we get cooler and that is helping us get to sleep. Why is all of this important? Again, I will relay this back when we get into our sleep protocols for using the exposure. We are going to start to get into deliberate cold exposure and the specifics, including protocols. So before you ask how cold, should your ice bath or bath or shower be? The shortest answer is quite simply, it's up to you. Um, again, if you are very cold adaptive, you may need to be in an even colder environment when exposing yourself to the cold. However, if you are not cold adaptive, you may find that you don't need much coolness to really feel the effect of it in terms of degrees. 
So keeping that in mind, it's really everyone is different. Some of these protocols will have specific numbers and that is more to do with heat um, because of heat responses. However, the cold is really just as cold as you can bear. And when I say as cold as you can bear, you should want to be in this cold or when you hop in this cold environment, you should be in there going, I really want to get out, but you stay in. You're able to stay in. You're telling yourself, no, I'm going to stay in. But your body, you and your body and your brain will be going, oh, I really want to get out. That's how we know when it's cold enough. So how to deliver cold therapy or the different types. Firstly, um, and what I believe is probably the most beneficial is ice bath or cold water immersion. So ice baths, um, they have a lot of studies done on them. They're also, they've been used for hundreds and hundreds of years, obviously without the studies, but anecdotally been used, especially by Scandinavian countries. We then go into cryo. So the big cryo machines where you stand in there. Now there's not a lot of studies on these. In fact, there's very little and they're mostly preliminary studies. So the findings aren't concrete. They may make some big claims that they're the bee's knees, but really when it comes down to it, the the studies just aren't there. So although these people are claiming certain things, it may be true, but without the science to back it up, it's also mostly likely down to being just a way to sell their services. We then go into a shower, so just jumping in cold showers. Now, the reason there aren't a lot of studies done on this is just because of the inaccuracy. If you were to go from house to house, um, building complex to building complex, and just have a cold shower, odds are the temperatures are going to change. Likewise with a hot shower, how much hot water is getting pumped in with cold water. It's never coming out at 100 degrees because it would burn you. So cold showers are much the same. It then also comes down to how much water is coming out of that shower. Do you have one of those large uh, kind of waterfall shower heads? Do you have a very small one with high pressure? Um, is it able to cover your shoulders? Do you have broad shoulders? Are you quite a, a smaller frame? There's all these different variables which um, aren't able to be conclusively done, uh, oh, sorry, able to be done under control in a in a scientific uh, laboratory. So, or, and then essentially replicating that out into everyone else's home. So, Unless everyone were to have the same shower head, we can't really derive um, or conclude very solid evidence from that. There's then also just the cold air outside. So if you are fortunate enough to live somewhere where it snows or it's very, very, very cold, then obviously you can get your exposure that way. It isn't extremely um, potent in terms of you do have to spend a lot longer in that environment. However, you can it can be done. But again, next to no studies have been done on this because simply where you live um, is going to determine so many different factors. So for example, if you live in Japan in winter, it is going to be snowing a lot. Um, Likewise, if you live in Queensland, Australia in winter, it's still relatively warm and you can go outside and do stuff. So it's very different there. We then also talk about just different times of day. So if you were to go expose yourself to the cold in the morning versus lunch versus night, and then just the different weather patterns from day to day. So when it's hotter one day, then colder the next. It's very inconsistent. So it's very hard to derive a protocol from that. Let's talk about some positive effects of cold exposure. 
Firstly, it can dramatically increase the release of dopamine. Remember, dopamine, like our endorphins, you're not going to feel great while you're in a cold bath or ice bath, but you will feel great after. This is, again, the dynorphins and endorphins. So dynorphins will be released first, endorphins released after, but you will feel great after. So there is, it is proven to have an increase in dopamine release. There's going to be a reduction of inflammation now. I need to be very, very clear here. This is when having, and I will cite this study, but this is when having an ice bath. It will help with a reduction in inflammation, not icing the area. So we now know not to ice. So if I have a sore knee after training and it's inflamed, I never ice the area. This doesn't help with inflammation. In fact, it restricts the body's ability to uh, promote healing properties around that area. So we never ice the um, area directly. However, having an ice bath cooling the entire shell eventually for the core temperature to drop and then getting back out and warming yourself. So the after effect has proven to obviously increase circulation, which then will help with making sure um, inflammation is decreased. The mental resilience with doing ice baths is very high. Again, this has been proven and I'll be citing this study very shortly, but um, the, the your mental resistance, your grit, um, that is all increased when we follow that specific protocol. So there is a specific protocol for mental resilience and grit. The enhancement of mental acuity and the ability to focus, and it also aids in increasing in strength and endurance outcomes. Now, you may be wondering how do you get stronger or how you're able to last longer in the gym from an ice bath? Well, please let me tell you. So, I will be citing some of the uh, some of the study here, so please forgive me while I read from the laptop. So, sorry, the conclusion of this review named the impact of cold water immersion compared with passive recovery following a single bout of strenuous exercise on athletic performance in physically active participants. A systematic review of the meta-analysis and meta-regression. So, the conclusion. Cold water immersion was an effective recovery tool after high intensity exercise with positive outcomes occurring for muscular power, muscle soreness, and perceived recovery 24 hours after exercise. So there were obviously subjective questions asked. Um, Everyone perceived that they felt better. However, after um, eccentric exercise, cold water immersion was only effective for positively influencing muscular power 24 hours after exercise. Dose response relationships emerged for positively influencing endurance performance, indicating that the shorter durations and lower temperatures may improve efficacy of cold water immersion if used after high intensity exercises. So, what does that mean? Well, in the study, what they did was they had people exercise and then within 24 hours, 
they um, got them to get in the ice bath. Generally, there was a two to four hour gap before. So after finishing exercise and then getting in the ice bath, two to four hour gap. But they noticed and they saw with tests done an increase in muscular performance and endurance. So they were some of the main ones there. So very, very interesting study. Um, and the protocols surrounding that I will go through shortly, but we are going to go now through just some hormone responses to ice baths. So what happens when we get into an ice bath? There is a release of adrenaline and noradrenaline. Noradrenaline is the main neurotransmitter or signal. Think of a neurotransmitter as a signal of the, of the systematic nerves in the cardiovascular system. Adrenaline is the hormone secreted by the adrenal gland just above the kidneys. Noradrenaline is the signal and adrenaline is the hormonal response to that signal. So when you get into the ice bath, you're going to go, oh, wow, that's really cold. You're going to have that sudden shock. You're going to feel yourself start to breathe very quickly. You're going to see some people that really say control your breathing, but naturally you're going to be breathing very, very quickly. What this is doing is noradrenaline is then created in the brain and this travels down the spinal cord, down through the thoracic and out past or through the neurons from there. They then eventually, they're going to tell everything to, so the noradrenaline is going to tell everything to see, like seize up, get tight. It's going to move blood away from the extremities. It's going to get you really alert. Pupils are going to dilate. What happens is when that signal finally gets to the kidneys, to the adrenal gland, sorry, not the kidneys, the adrenal gland that sits on top, it then releases adrenaline into the bloodstream. So the signal has told the um, adrenal gland to release adrenaline, the hormone, into the bloodstream, which then pumps through the whole body and it continues the process. So in a flight or fight or flight response, this is when we would either gear up and get ready to fight or we would run away. Now, the difference with hopping in an ice bath compared to being in a stressful environment like a lion's trying to eat you is we are not seeing other hormones such as cortisol and all those hormones that are needed in that fight or flight response being released. We're just seeing adrenaline and noradrenaline be released. This is a good thing because without those other hormones, we're then able to um, have these healing effects such as muscle recovery, uh, increased muscle endurance, and um, also the uh, reduction in inflammation. And that is because when adrenaline is released, you will have that, um, you will have like the blood vessels which do restrict. Obviously you get out of the ice bath when you're done. They dilate and blood and all the anti-inflammatory properties, all the good hormones, they're able to circle around the body. So the protocols for learning and retaining information. So this is a great protocol. Anyone that is trying to learn a skill, that is trying to learn at uni, at school, they're trying to learn a course. If you're trying to learn something, so you are physically doing something new or trying to retain information, this is an amazing protocol. And this protocol is actually extremely easy. You don't need a entire ice bath. You can actually just hack the system and 
get the most out of this, but it does involve some exercise. So let me go through this now. So study was called Brief aerobic exercise immediately enhances visual attention control and perceptual speed, testing the mediating role of feelings of energy. So that's the name of the study. This study found out that by doing 15 minutes, so first protocol, by doing 15 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, also known as zone two, so this isn't hit, you're not running around doing 100 burpees going a million miles an hour, This is just going for a run for 15 minutes or the equivalent of and maintaining a pace where you're still able to hold a conversation. After maybe a few sentences, you may need to get your breath back, but 90% of the time, 95% of the time, you can maintain and hold a normal conversation. So that is our moderate exercise. We want to do that for 15 minutes. What this found was an increase in energy focus and attention hours after they finish just by doing this just by doing this one protocol 15 minutes of moderate exercise they saw an increase for hours after it did vary slightly so there's no specific it will last for this long but just 15 minutes of zone 2 cardio will see an increase of you having more perceived energy focus and attention hours after finishing Participants were then tested both visually and cognitively via the trail test. Results showed that they had increased scores from before they did it. So not only were they feeling or perceived that they had more energy and focus, the scores from the trail test, both A and B, also said that they have improved cognitively um, through visual and um, movement. So they had to circle Uh, letters in order which were jambled up all over um, the screen. The protocol, in short, for retaining information and learning information is as follows, up to or more 15 minutes, so 15 minutes of zone two cardio, followed by your learning bout, however long that takes, maybe half an hour and maybe two hours. So 15 minutes zone two cardio, learning bout, and then an increase of, indre- of adrenaline. We want to increase adrenaline after the learning bout. Now, there are also studies out there that say by going and having uh, a nap or going into uh, non- non-deep sleep rest uh, can help with this. However, it has been proven that by re- releasing adrenaline after a bout of learning, you are able to retain the information. So how can we increase our adrenaline. It's very, very simple. We can get a spike in adrenaline simply by placing a limb, a hand, a foot, probably best your hand, in a bucket of ice water. It's as simple as that. We can also get it from deliberate heat or cold exposure. So by going into an actual ice bath, or we can get it from doing high intensity interval training. So really going out and smashing yourself. At the start, we've done zone two, very chill cardio, um, still able to have a conversation. If we're going out and doing HIT, high intensity interval training, we're going round and round, we're working our heart rate as much as we can. So we're sort of in that 80 to 90th percentile of max heart rate. Or you can also use stimulants. Not advised, but they are possible. So stimulants such as caffeine will help increase adrenaline. Obviously it would need to be a high potency, but 
it is possible. So that is our protocol for retaining and, or sorry, for learning and retaining information. 15 minutes, zone two cardio, learning bout, adrenaline dump. As simple as that. That is gonna help you retain the information you have just learned. So now, next up, our protocols of ice baths for mental resilience. So these are two different protocols, which I'm gonna go through now. The first protocol is a time protocol. And the way we're gonna do this is essentially, it's not that effective, it does work. However, there are better ways. But I'm gonna go through the time protocol first. So time protocol for mental resilience would simply be on day one, Say Monday, I'm gonna get into the ice bath for one minute. On day two, which may be Wednesday, I'm gonna get into the ice bath for a minute 30. And on day three, which may be Friday, I'm gonna get into the ice bath for two minutes. And I'm gonna keep increasing that every time I get into the ice bath from there. There will come a time where obviously the time starts to get too long. So we then are able to drop the temperature However, you will get to a state where you are just going to be spending, you'll be in the lowest possible temperature that you can be in and you're going to be staying in there too long. So it does become kind of um, ineffective. Uh, Unless you've got all the time in the world, then by all means, you can definitely follow that protocol. A more beneficial and probably better protocol is the wall protocol. Now, a wall is when there is an, an adrenaline surge. So remember um, our noradrenaline, which is that signal, the first initial signal, and then the adrenaline that follows, an adrenaline surge. And this is when your body and your brain are saying, no, nah, get out, I'm done. Every time you're able to stay in, so your first wall may just be getting into the water. The second wall may come about 30 seconds or so after where you really want to get out, but you push through it. So by working on this wall protocol, we can simply say, right, I'm going to be in the ice bath today for this many walls and maybe three walls. And this is great because it's also subjective. There may be days where you're just not feeling it. You're not feeling strong and powerful. You're not feeling very resilient. So by doing going through three walls, that may only last a minute 30, but you've still broken through those walls. You've still gone through those adrenaline surges. On other days when you're feeling really mentally switched on, you're feeling great, you're feeling like you can really tackle the world, you may find that those walls, the time duration between them have greatly increased, but you're still breaking through those walls. So you can see how it suddenly becomes subjective and it's depending on how you're feeling, yet you're still going to get the benefits of this mental resilience. So that's where the wall protocol becomes very beneficial because it is really up to you how you're feeling on the day and then how well you can push through those walls and you set those predetermined walls before you get in there. Up next, we've got a protocol finally for hot and cold baths, so the changing. So I've just put this in here before we get into the hot protocols. Now, there is a whole bunch of literature out there which offers different times for different reasons. Basically, the most kind of generalized um, format I can come over for a hot cold bath. Now, this is hopping in the cold bath and then in the hot bath and then the cold bath going back and forth. The best protocol that I can find for this is generally around, say, three minutes of cold 
into one to 1.5 minutes of hot. Um, so essentially you could almost list it as say a somewhat of a Tabata. Double the amount of time in the cold as opposed to the hot. Um, this is really up to you. You can set as many rounds as you want. It can be three, it can be five, it can be 10. All I would say from the literature that I've seen is for the following day. So if you're doing this on a Tuesday and your Wednesday looks like you've got a heavy bout of training, I would recommend finishing in the hot bath. So you would start in the cold, finish in the hot, um, on a day, so say if that Wednesday, however, you're doing a, you're doing a hot cold bath on Tuesday. Say on that Wednesday, however, you go um, and you don't have any training. It's an active recovery day. Then I would probably say finish in the cold. That would be really the only difference. However, if you're then going to apply sauna to that after the fact, which I know a lot of people do, it's really up to you. Um, again, to get the best results from sauna, I would probably still finish in the hot bath because you're then going into a hot environment. You go into that hot environment too cold, you're going to have to be in there longer in order to get the same uh, effects there. So hot cold bath protocol is starting cold on a rest day, finishes, finish in cold on a active day, being the following day, finish on warm. If you're going to go from the hot cold baths into a sauna, finish on the hot bath anyway so you can warm that uh so you can warm up the shell start to warm up the core then get in the sauna now finally just some tips for ice baths these are going to make it a lot more beneficial to you when you are doing them so first of all setting a temperature that's uncomfortable we need to set that cold temperature so it is uncomfortable if you can tolerate it and you can feel like it's fine it's like a little uncomfortable we want, we want colder, okay? We want uncomfortable. If we don't do that, we're unable to determine, oh, sorry, we're unable to determine what temperature each individual has or their threshold. So what that means is set a temperature that works for you. Everyone is different. If you go with a mate, they may find it easy. They may find it worse. Just know, much like lifting weights, it's all about you. Make sure that you're able to handle what's going on. Make sure you build up to cold temperatures. So if you are doing ice baths frequently, we wanna make sure that we are increasing the either duration or the coldness of the ice bath if we have the ability to do. We wanna make sure when we're in an ice bath, we are always moving. If we're not moving when we're in an ice bath, what happens is a thermal layer is created. So the heat in which our skin gives off creates a thermal layer so the actual water touching our skin isn't the true temperature. So what we need to do is if we're in, say you uh, say play for a football team and you guys only have the wheelie bins, you gotta make sure you're moving while you're in there. Some of these good ice baths, they'll have the jets that are pumping around so you can't really hide. But likewise, spread the fingers, move the hands around, move the arms around, move the feet, just keep moving. That is actually gonna be more difficult in terms of how you perceive the cold than someone that's just sitting there with their eyes closed being super still. That's actually the coward's way out, if we put it. Make sure you're moving around. So they are the tips. Oh, sorry, and there's one more. So the optimal times per week. Optimal times, how many times or how long should we be in an ice bath for? So um, most of the studies point towards a minimum of 11 to 15 minutes per week. So a total, a total of 11 to 15 minutes per week. 
broken up into multiple sessions. So doing that in one go wasn't as beneficial as shorter bouts that led up to that time over multiple times per week. So they're the opti- that's the optimal amount of times to do ice bars. Of course, um, with ice bars, you've got those different protocols. So making sure uh, what fits in there for you. You can obviously go over this. That's completely fine. But kind of around three sessions, sort of, uh, four to five minutes each or three to five minutes each, that's that's probably what's going to be best over three or four sessions. All right, now let's get into our deliberate heat exposure. This is the good stuff, if I'm honest, because I do love the heat. So how are we heating up the environment? What are we using to get hot? There is our dry sauna. So when it's dry, we've also got our steam or wet saunas. Sure, you've all been in there, they pump out the steam. Now, keep in mind, a dry sauna can have hot rocks and you pour water over it to create steam. That is still a dry sauna. However, you can get now your steam saunas where they're constantly pumping steam into the room. That would be classed as a wet sauna. We also have our infrared saunas. Now, I won't be mentioning infrared saunas um, today because commonly found, we're not we're not finding infrared saunas actually getting hot enough. So infrared um, being a light or a wave of light actually has its own beneficial properties when it comes to the skin and other organs. What they've done is they've created this infrared. So you can technically go to an infrared sauna. It's just a light being beamed on you. It doesn't need to be hot. For you to get the benefits of the heat, we actually need to have it between 80 and 100 degrees And it's pretty lucky that these infrared saunas even get up to 70. So really all it is is a quite a hot room, but you're only getting the benefits of infrared. I won't be going through the benefits of infrared today. As I said, I'll be going through the benefits of heat. So heat exposure, and this is commonly done in a dry or wet sauna. Okay. The other ways are also hot tubs. So we can jump in a hot bath. That's another way of being uh, exposed to heat. We can also be in rooms and crank up the heat. So if you're air, if you've got aircon and you can crank it up to say like 40 degrees, that's another form of heat exposure. And then also by heating the shells. So wearing lots of clothing, as I said, and going for a run, say in summer with a jumper on. So there are ways of um, being able to heat up. What are the parameters of a sauna? Now, from here, guys, I'm going to be mentioning sauna. It won't be wet or dry because in actual fact, it doesn't matter. As long as you can achieve this temperature raise, this, sorry, temperature range, you are going to be able to get the benefits of heat exposure, be it wet or dry. It's merely preference. So our temperature range, which was done in the studies across most studies, was between 80 and 100 degrees. So the temperature always fell somewhere in there, never lower. So 80 degrees is our minimum threshold that we're looking for. As I said, most public saunas, commercial saunas, they do actually uh, struggle to get up there unless you can get them to crank it higher for you. Uh, Most of them are probably set at around 70, 75. So the length of time to be in these saunas in order to get the uh, benefits, it will obviously range. However, per week, as I said, with your ice baths, it's between... um, you know, uh, 11 to to 15 minutes per week. With our sauna, this is per session, just on average, we're looking to be in there between 
five and 20 minutes per session, five and 20 minutes per session, depending on how heat adaptive you are. So if you're able to tolerate the heat, you wanna be in there a bit longer. If you really can't tolerate the heat, you're one of those Tasmanians that I mentioned, probably get out. Obviously it's all up to you. Um, with that as well, in terms of frequency, we're looking to increase that um, over. So uh, in terms of frequency, it can be anywhere between um, two to seven times per week, one to seven times per week. But as you become heat adaptive, you wanna increase the length that you're in there and then you can also increase the frequency. But when taking up new protocols, especially with heat guys, it's not weak to go to the lower end of the protocol at all. In fact, it's actually quite smart because it's gonna show you where you are and you're gonna notice more of the positive benefits than the um, than not noticing them by going at that lower end. Of course, if you are heat adaptive, then yes, follow the more higher end of the protocol. But this is very interesting. So this was a part of a study uh, and I'll, again, all of these will be listed um, in the show notes, guys, at the end. But they found with frequency, two to three times per week led to a 27% less likely to die of cardiovascular events compared to someone that only used a sauna once a week. So being in there between five and 20 minutes, two to three times a week, made you 27% less likely to die of a cardiovascular um, episode as opposed to someone that used it once a week. Furthermore, people that used it four to seven times per week had a 50% less like were 50% less likely to die of a cardiovascular event compared to someone that only used it once a week. So if you're able to use a sauna between four and seven times a week, between five and 20 minutes per session, you are 50% less likely to die than someone that only uses it once a week from cardiovascular issues or stroke. That's huge, guys. That is huge. Half, half. Insane. The study looked at potentially confounding variables, such as people who smoked, were overweight, exercised, or not exercised. They're able to separate out those variables, and so the percentages mentioned before are the effects of the sauna and not related to someone potentially changing lifestyle for the better during the study. What that means, guys, is it doesn't matter if you were overweight, if you were super fit, if you were super unfit, if you were healthy or unhealthy. They took all of those variables into account and they still found these results. The 27% less likely to die two to three times, the four to seven times, 50% less likely to die than someone that used it once. So guys, that is huge. They also found that regular sauna at two to three times per week is statistically proven to increase longevity. So in the same study, they found that it is um, statistically proven to increase your longevity. So how well long you live for. Regular heat exposure can reduce mortality of cardiovascular events as well as other events such as stroke. So some really big stuff. So that's like heart disease, all of that kind of stuff, guys. It is actually proven to be very, very good for you. You're still able to achieve the results even without a sauna, simply by heating up the shell and core enough to elicit the desired results. So what that means, guys, is obviously, uh, if you can't get into a sauna, you can still go out there and achieve these results. But that's what I talk about when it comes down to time. Um, you're going to need to be out running in the heat in, you know, like a lot of hot, 
or a lot of big clothes, a lot of um, like jackets and stuff. You're going to have to be out there for a long time in order to get the same uh, results, but they are achievable without sauna, which is good. So what sauna is best? As I said before, guys, when we're talking about wet and dry, it is simply up to preference. They are no difference. There's no difference because we're talking about heat. We're not talking about wet or dry, but keeping in mind that a infrared sauna, yes, if it gets up to 80 degrees or higher, great, you get all these benefits. But if it doesn't, you're only getting the benefits that infrared provides. And that will be covered off in a different um in a different podcast. Important to note, um, if you can get the heat up to 80 degrees, it is going to increase your heart rate up to around or above 150 beats per minute. And what does this mean? 150 beats per minute is sort of around that zone two, zone three. So it is classed as a cardio workout sitting in the sauna. However, although the heart is working harder, you're actually not getting the same benefits as going out and doing exercise that elicits that same heart rate. So you're not getting the impact on the joints and bones to strengthen them, the density in the bone or the resistance to muscles and ligaments in order for them to strengthen. So yes, you are. Yes, your heart is working harder and your cardiovascular system is working, but you're not getting the other benefits of doing that same sort of workout. So the metabolism increase protocol. What we want to do is combine both hot and cold. Um, You can use both of these or you can just use one. But by spending 11 to 15 minutes minimum threshold of cold exposure and 57 minutes of heat exposure over multiple sessions, so multiple sessions done throughout the week, not just in one go, you're going to increase your metabolism. And this is done because the body is working really hard if you're in the heat to cool down and vice versa if you're in the cold to heat up. So there is that uh, metabolic response of the body releasing hormones, the muscles doing what they need to do, especially if you're cold, obviously constriction. If you're hot, dilation or expansion of the muscle. So this is all happening and this will increase your metabolism. Will you lose fat and you know be shredded just by doing this? Absolutely not. You need to first be able to get enough sleep. You need to be able to be hydrated. You need to make sure your nutrition's on point. Get those three pillars done first. And then, yes, this may help a little bit. It's going to work more in your benefit, but you're not going to get shredded and you're not going to lose 20 kilos just by jumping in the sauna and jumping in the ice bath, okay? But the byproduct of being in the sauna and being in the ice bath or cool bath is your metabolism will increase. By how much? It's hard to say because everyone's different. I'm 103 kilos and I'm six foot six. My metabolism increase will be more than someone that's five foot nothing and 50 kilos. So how long's a piece of string really at the end of the day? But no, as a byproduct by doing this, your metabolism, yes, will increase. If you do anything, your metabolism will increase. Anything positive and active. So Our next protocol, protocol for increasing growth hormone. For you gym bros, you're gonna love this. For everyone, you should love this. Increasing growth hormone, guys, is amazing. You may associate growth hormone with either steroids, so getting really big, that's not right. Human growth hormone, we've all had it. If you've gone through puberty, you have had growth hormone floating through your system. That is how you got to the size you are now. Unless you're vertically challenged, you were probably always that height. But 
For human growth hormone guys, here is a great protocol. So what we want to do to dramatically increase human growth hormone is we want to be in a sauna that is 80 degrees, 80 to 81 degrees. The study was done at, so let's just say 80 degrees for 30 minutes. We're going to do this 30 minute sauna four times in the one day. That is a total of two hours of sauna in one day at 80 degrees. In between those 30 minute uh, time frames, we go through a cooling process. That might look like a six to 10 minute cool shower, having 30 minutes off and then getting back in. But we're doing three, uh, sorry, four by 30 minute rounds in the sauna. Subjects that did this had an increase of 16 fold. Their human growth hormone increased 16 fold. That is massive guys. In comparison, however, 16 fold, it is not a lot compared to the amounts of growth hormone that's being released in your body through puberty. However, 16 fold is a lot of growth hormone being released, say when we just go to bed at night because growth hormone gets released every single night we go to sleep. Small amounts, that helps with repairing, it helps with normal bodily function, but we can increase that by 16 fold, which is huge. Now, there is an important caveat to this, and that is the effects of human growth hormone did go down when they repeated this on days three and seven. So they did this over three days, one, three, and seven, sorry, not over three days, this over a week. They did a, a, this exact same sauna um, time frame protocol on days one, three, and seven. They noticed a severe drop-off in days three and seven of growth hormone after doing this. So the way we want to manipulate this protocol is you would only do it, say, once every uh, kind of 10 to 15 days. You would do this 30 minutes by four um, to increase human growth hormone by 16 fold. So what we also need to keep in mind then is if we are doing that, if that is our desired effect, we can't then go and use the sauna on other days because we will develop a, will become heat adaptive, as I mentioned before. The more heat adaptive you are, the less human growth hormone you're going to release. So in theory, if you were to increase the temperature, so say you did all your saunas at 80 degrees, but then you went through this protocol and you went up to 100 degrees. I'm not saying that's what you do. This is just as an example. But if you went up to 100 degrees, then maybe the human growth hormone would go up to around 16 fold. However, the study showed the more heat adaptive you became, the less human growth hormone would be secreted. So I need you to keep that in mind. Where this protocol might be really good, guys, is say, for example, and I'm going to use this because everyone will know, um, say if you were to do a marathon or a triathlon, something really big or a really big event, um, not so much like a, a game that happens weekly, but say it's a CrossFit event. Say it's a big event or you've done something like you've done the craziest leg workout you've done in months. Then the day after may be a great time to do this protocol if you're not using sauna regularly, because that growth hormone is gonna really increase speed up and allow the muscles to repair and get you back in training and doing what you love sooner. The next protocol is for sleep. 
and growth hormone. So we're not going to be getting as much growth hormone as previously stated, 16-fold, but there will be a slight increase. This protocol is we are trying to get into a sauna three times a week, 20 minutes per session. What we're trying to do is because later in the evening, our circadian rhythm, our circadian rhythm, um, and there's an increase in growth hormone. So we want to do this later in the evening. What I mean by that is, as an example might be, if your bedtime is 10 o'clock, we may find that we want to go into a sauna around 5 p.m., do our 20 minutes, and then after that, we have a quick shower. We want to have a kind of warm shower or cool shower, not a cold one. From there, we have dinner. Allow yourself sort of two to three hours um, after dinner to digest and then go to bed. That's what I mean by doing it later in the evening. Now, an important thing to note is that when we are doing this for sleep, we follow that. But if we're doing this for growth hormone as well, we, uh, sorry, in the case of human growth hormone, avoid, if possible, eating up to two to three hours before the sauna, if done in the evening. Then when eating dinner afterwards, so if you do the sauna in the afternoon, don't have food two to three hours before. Once you've done the sauna, then have food and try to be in bed and getting to sleep within two to three hours after eating that food. That is going to allow you to secrete the most amount of growth hormone. If we have food close to then and it's got carbohydrates, if there are increased levels of insulin and glucose in the system, this has been shown to lower or blunten, so to blunten or reduce the release of human growth hormone. A little note to take is making the surface area cold, so your body, making the surface area cold will heat up the body for the short term after, so cold exposure in the evening may prevent you getting to sleep. So if you're doing an ice bath later at night, this may prevent you getting to sleep because remember, you're cooling the core body temperature and then you need to heat up. When we're trying to get to sleep with our um, core body temperature hitting its peak and then going down. So if we cool ourselves down and then our body has to heat itself back up, it's going to be harder for us to then start to cool down again to release melatonin, our sleep hormone. So the little note there is try to avoid, if you are trying to increase sleep, try to avoid cold showers and ice baths because we need to heat back up. We want to have warm or hot showers before bed, not before bed, but later in the evening so we're able to let the core temperature cool down because remember if we heat the shell up, the body works harder to cool down, that cooling process starts and then we're able to release melatonin, puts us to sleep, If we don't have glucose or if we don't have high levels of glucose and insulin in the body, we're able to release more human growth hormone in that first stage of sleep, which is predominantly a slow wave. Finally, our rehydration protocol. So if you're in a sauna, guys, you need to be hydrated. You need to be hydrated before you get in there. You need to be hydrated while you're in there and you need to hydrate once you get out. So a good rule of thumb, there is no real sort of... um, uh, rule to this because everyone's so different. How much you stretch, uh, so stretch. How much you sweat, um, what type of sweat. So if you're sweating out a lot of salts or electrolytes, if you're not sweating a lot at all, it's obviously all different. But a good rule of thumb 
uh, depending on the amount you've sweated and the salts and electrolytes that you've lost, is about 500 mils per 10 minutes you were in the sauna. So if you're doing 20 minutes of sauna, then it is a liter of water. Now, I do recommend you are drinking while you're in there, not cold water, because if we cool down the core body temperature, we then obviously go through or we're having the adverse reaction while we're in there. We want to be heating up as much as possible. So just having room temperature water while you're in there. And then once you get out, having that 500 mil per 10 minutes you're in there. But obviously, guys, always go on the higher end. It does not hurt to be hydrated. So guys, that concludes the protocols, the ice bath protocols or cool exposure protocols and the heat exposure protocols. I hope you got a lot out of this, guys. If you've got any questions, please, please, please send them through. You can obviously get in contact with me um, via Instagram. Um, again, the Instagram handles are for myself, Josh J. Atkins for ATP. It is at ATP Podcast. If you want to find us on the web, we are at www.atpfitness.com.au or you can go into Google search and just search Coach Josh Atkins. Likewise, on um, YouTube, you can find me at Coach Josh Atkins where this video will be played. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple, or any other streaming services under the ATP podcast. So it's just ATP, no, the ATP podcast. Guys, thank you so much for listening. If there is anything you would like to know, be it on this episode, or you would like me to cover any other topics, please send them through. I'll be happy to research them, do as much as I can. I really enjoy this stuff, and I love being able to bring the breakdown to you. If you do any of these protocols and you do find benefit from them, please get in touch with me. Let me know if it worked for you or if it didn't. Let me know what the parameters were that you followed and if they were you were able to follow them quite strictly. Um, would love to know. Um, you can leave comments for that or you can get in contact directly. Anything would be great, guys. But other than that, thank you so much and I'll be seeing you shortly.